Hello everyone and welcome to episode 27 of the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. So far we've traced the Gospel of John through to chapter 18, which we will look at in today's podcast. You may recall that the tension has been building between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus has told his disciples that the time of darkness has arrived in which he will be executed. In chapters 14 and 16, we saw Jesus give a farewell sermon to his disciples, essentially passing on the baton so that they can continue the movement which he started. In chapter 17, we saw Jesus pray for the disciples that following his departure, they might be united to God and one another. Now let's pick up the action from chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. So this was to fulfill that the word which had been spoken of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having drawn a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? So the band of soldiers and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So the first thing I want to acknowledge in this passage is that Jesus brings his disciples into a garden where he often took them. For them, that was a sacred space. It was a safe where, space where they could be together. And you might notice they've just come out of another sacred space, a meal which Jesus shared with his disciples. This concept of sacred space is something that we modern people often forget about. Ancient people used to have temples or shrines or tabernacles and that tabernacle was a sacred space. People could go there and they could sit and they could be. When you went entered into a temple, an ancient temple, it depicted the world and the creation, but everything was just as it should be. All the chaos and disorder gets left at the front door. And when you enter that temple, it's a place where God rules, that God, whoever the temple belongs to. It's like a microcosm, a representation, a little model of creation, but without all the chaos and disorder. 
it is just perfect and everything is the way it should be. So you can imagine when you've had a hard day, when you've had a stressful time with the children or at work with your boss, you can go into this sacred space and leave all of that behind. All the chaos, confusion, disorder, stress. It's a place where you can escape all of that and just be. And for Jesus and his disciples, that's what this garden was. It was a place where they could go and just be together. And so it's not surprising that Jesus takes his disciples here right at this moment, at the most stressful and confronting time. He brings them to that sacred place, that place where they're comfortable, that place where the confusion is left at the door. Jesus brings them there so that they can find themselves. And so we can learn from that as modern people, we often forget that we need to take this sacred space and find somewhere to chill, to recollect ourselves, to leave behind the hustle and bustle, disorder and chaos of our lives. So some people find it comfortable like Jesus does with his disciples going into a garden, going into nature, connecting with nature. For you, it might be something different, but for us to experience true joy, and to be in that healthy place, a sacred space is really important. Now let's move on and talk about the rest of the action that happens in this narrative. Judas has betrayed Jesus, leading a band of soldiers to arrest him. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, Judas has withdrawn from Jesus and his teaching to re-engage in the world of mimetic rivalry. This rivalry leads Judas to band together with the rest of the Jewish leaders as they seek to kill Jesus. Jesus' persecution at the hand of the Jewish leaders is the outworking of the same scapegoat mechanism we've observed throughout John's Gospel. You may recall that in chapter 8, the Jewish leaders attempt to execute a woman who they have accused of committing adultery. This attempted execution began with one accusation, which was imitated by someone else, and another, and another, until the whole crowd was united against this woman. Although the crowd is completely oblivious, their persecution of this woman is driven by mimetic rivalry. Excessive mimetic rivalry within the community prompts everyone to imitate everyone else, which eventually leads the whole community to be united against a single scapegoat upon whom they seek to vent their collective rivalries. In this episode, it's the woman who becomes the scapegoat which everyone persecutes because of her alleged adultery. But Jesus puts an end to their efforts by pointing out the arbitrary nature of their accusations. He reminds the crowd that just like this woman, they too are sinners, and one by one the crowd disperses. Following this incident, mimetic rivalry continues to simmer within the community. The religious leaders become concerned that Jesus' ministry will jeopardize their political position. Caiaphas, the high priest, suggests that Jesus' execution might solve their problem. Let's go back and read chapters 11 from verse 46 to 52. So the high priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. 
But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on they made plans to put him to death. The excessive rivalry that rages within the community threatens to plunge the entire nation into a crisis. But Caiaphas knows what to do. He needs a scapegoat to unite the people against and purge mimetic rivalry from the community. They tried this with the woman who was caught in adultery, but that process failed because of Jesus' interference. Caiaphas suggests that Jewish leaders need to incite the people against Jesus now, the one who has sided with the scapegoat, the one who has defended. He's the problem. He's the stick in the spoke of the bicycle wheel that's causing the chaos. He is the problem because he won't let them carry out their normal processes, their normal way of purging mimetic rivalry. Caiaphas suggests that the Jewish leaders incite the people against Jesus to orchestrate his communal execution, draw the people together and put an end to the crisis. You see, Jesus has now become the scapegoat. As the Jewish leaders point to Jesus as the problem, as the cause of the crisis, as the source of everything that's wrong with their society, more and more people come on board. And even Judas is drawn into this process as he joins the crowd to persecute Jesus. Let's consider now what happens when Judas and his soldiers confront Jesus in the garden. Judas and his band of soldiers carry lanterns, torches and weapons. They have come ready to seek out Jesus and to violently subdue him if necessary. Even though this story is set during the Passover, which means there would have been a full moon that night, John tells us that the soldiers still carried lanterns and torches. Perhaps these details are meant to signal the darkness of mimetic rivalry which shrouds Jesus and his soldiers' vision, especially as these tools are used in the presence of ample light provided by the full moon. Maybe John wants to emphasize that this is a time of darkness. Even though it's the Passover, even though it's full moon, it's still dark. Jesus steps forward and asks the soldiers who they are seeking. If you will recall in the first chapter, this is the same question which Jesus asks John's disciples who first begin to follow him. On the one hand, Jesus may be inviting the soldiers to repent of their mimetic rivalry and to come and follow him, just as he did with John's disciples. On the other hand, throughout the gospel, we also see the religious leaders seeking to arrest and to kill Jesus. So in a sense, Jesus' words are kind of open in that sense. This idea of who are you seeking may go either way. It's up to the soldiers to decide their own destiny. What will they do? They are facing a crisis 
And Jesus is challenging them to choose their actions wisely. What or whom will they seek? The soldiers reply that they are seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus responds with ego a me, that is, I am that person. Scholars talk a lot about the seven I am sayings in John's gospel and what these sayings tell us about Jesus' identity. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus uses this phrase to identify himself as the Messiah in John chapter 4 and the one who meets and comforts the disciples in the midst of the storm and feeds them in chapter 6. This phrase is also used as Jesus calls himself the light of the world, the door and the resurrection which lead to true life, the good shepherd who cares for his sheep, and the true vine in which the disciples must abide. When Jesus utters these words in John chapter 18, it's like the reader is seeing all of these imagery put together into one powerful package. And that's what we see, the power of this revelation causes the soldiers to draw back and fall to the ground twice. Some people argue that these soldiers experience a revelation of Jesus' identity, his divinity, or maybe just his awesome power which literally knocks them off their feet. At the very least though, Jesus' words carry the full force of his identity as it has been revealed throughout John's Gospel. The soldiers' reaction to this revelation seems to communicate their lack of power in that moment. John wants to make it very clear to us that Jesus is voluntarily submitting himself for arrest. John tells us that by doing so, Jesus saves his disciples as he assumes the role of the scapegoat. Nevertheless, Simon Peter is also drawn into the rivalry as he raises his swords and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Why? Because Peter is drawn into the mimetic rivalry. In that moment, Peter is thinking, it's us versus them. It's dog against dog. It's kill or be killed. This mode of thinking leads Peter to consider his act of violence as evidence of his loyalty to Jesus' cause. After all, he is standing by Jesus as he resists and fights against his betrayer, Judas. Peter thinks that he is standing up for truth, but he is unknowingly being lured into the darkness. For those of you who have seen the Star Wars movie, this is why the Emperor Darth Sidious always attempts to lure the young Jedis to the dark side by inciting their anger and violence. He wants them to embrace this us versus them mindset. He wants them to zealously defend the light as they lash out in violence against the agents of darkness because as they do so, they wander away from the light and embrace the darkness. In this passage, Peter embraces the darkness as he lashes out in violence against his rival, the servant of the high priest. Do you see what's happening here? Peter, the servant of Jesus, engages in violence with his rival, the servant of the high priest. Notice that Peter does not attack the high priest himself or Judas or one of the soldiers, but the servant of his master's rival, who by virtue of his position becomes Peter's rival. Peter expects Jesus to do likewise 
and to succumb to mimetic rivalry and engage in reciprocal violence with his rival, Caiaphas. But like a good Jedi master, Jesus rebukes Peter and models what it looks like to resist the pull of mimetic rivalry as he submits to his own arrest. Jesus asked Peter, Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given me? What is this cup? And how has the Father given it to Jesus? Some people argue that the cup which God the Father gives to Jesus represents a divinely predetermined plan for Jesus to die on the cross. In other words, Jesus' suffering and pain, torment and death on the cross was foreordained, a divinely determined plan. And this is the cup which the Father is handing to Jesus. It's his destiny, if you like. But this reading of the test suggests that God the Father has chosen this path for his son Jesus, which means that God has predetermined the evil that will be afflicted upon Jesus in the time of darkness upon the cross. However, I read this passage a little differently. As I've argued in this podcast throughout John's Gospel, Jesus and God the Father are portrayed as the source of all light and truth. The world, on the other hand, is shrouded in darkness because they have become blinded by the lie of mimetic rivalry. Jesus has come as the light of the world to reveal the folly of mimetic rivalry and to manifest God's creative wisdom in our world. For this reason, the evil and darkness seen at the cross must be a product of the world's entanglement in mimetic rivalry. It goes against God's character that we've seen throughout the whole gospel for God to engage in rivalry also and to persecute Jesus on the cross. At the cross, the rivalry and violence conceived through mimetic forces is revealed in all its horror. At the same time, God's glory is also revealed as Jesus drinks the cup which his father has given him. That is, to resist mimetic rivalry just as he has learnt from God the Father. This is why Jesus instructs Peter to return his sword to its sheath and imitate Jesus' refusal to engage in mimetic rivalry with those who seek to kill him. So this cup which Jesus has handed from his father is not exactly the suffering and death on the cross, but more specifically, it's Jesus' reaction to the persecution which he receives from the religious authorities. Yes, his reaction leads him to the cross and results in his death. But I don't think that God is the author of that suffering, pain and execution. I think that suffering, pain and execution is a result of the darkness. It's a result of the lie of mimetic rivalry commanding the people's thoughts and their actions. The cup that God has handed to Jesus, which he must drink, is the cup of resistance. Resistance to the forces of mimetic rivalry as he refuses to engage in rivalry with his attackers. Let's read on now from verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Jesus stood outside at the door. 
So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, then bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you dare strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Peter follows Jesus to the courtyard of the high priest, probably in the hope that he will find an opportunity to rescue Jesus from his captors. In other words, Jesus is probably planning a prison break, but he can't get inside until one of the other disciples, who is known to the high priest, talks to the servant guarding the door and she lets him in. When the servant raises her suspicions about Peter, he denies any involvement with Jesus. As he attempts to blend in with the servants who are warming themselves by the fire, these servants also accuse him of being one of Jesus' disciples. Again, Peter denies it. Finally, the brother of the very man Peter attacked in the garden asks him, Surely I saw you in the garden with him. And Peter again denies it. Perhaps Peter is fearful of being persecuted and tried along with Jesus, or perhaps he's just biding his time, waiting for an opportunity to free Jesus. In any case, his cover has been blown, and when the rooster crows, Peter realizes he has wandered off track. Back in chapter 13, Peter declares his complete devotion, claiming that he will never deny Jesus, but he will give up his life for him if the need arises. Jesus replies, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. At the crow of the rooster, Peter realizes that he has missed the point. Jesus doesn't want Peter to rescue him or to fight for him in the hope of gaining political power, but rather Jesus wants Peter to lay aside his desire for political power. Peter has been desperately clinging to his aspirations of political dominance, which has now led him to deny Jesus. In the next podcast, we'll see Jesus model what it looks like to lay down one's aspirations of political dominance. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.